Welcome to That Rooted Feeling Podcast, where we bring you high-value health information and practical tips to help you improve your lifestyle habits with a focus on plant-centered nutrition. So you can achieve optimal wellness that radiates into and improves all areas of your life, giving you that rooted feeling that you won't know until you have it. Welcome back to another week. In case this is your first time listening, I wanted to introduce myself. I am Jamie. I'm a holistic plant-centered health coach, and I'm here with my co-host, Dr. Brooke Stubbs. She specializes in lifestyle medicine and is the owner of Rooted Femme, and she helps patients really achieve optimal wellness in their life. So today we are going to dive into sustainable weight loss. Before we get started, I just want to remind you to discuss any diet changes or weight loss programs with your medical provider. This is not meant to replace medical advice. And I have a feeling that this is going to be a big episode for our listeners. So Brooke, why don't you jump right in? Can you take it away? Yeah, thanks, Jamie. Welcome back. I agree. This is going to be fun and it's going to be very insightful. I think our listeners are really going to enjoy this. This is a big topic and all vanity and industry aside, right? Because this is a huge industry for money making. It's a big health concern. For sure. It's actually getting a lot of attention from researchers too. So there's a lot of information and there's going to be more coming out, but a lot to cover today. So when we talk about weight, we can't skip the fact that carrying excess weight is a huge health concern. When you are carrying excess weight, your body is in this inflammatory state and it will affect every body system. And we know that inflammation is the cause of underlying disease. So we know that being overweight or obese is associated with migraines and dementia. So that's your brain system. Heart attacks, of course, breast cancer, diabetes, ovarian cancer, infertility, some fractures, and osteoarthritis. So not only are these chronic conditions going to affect your health, but they're definitely going to affect your quality of life. And we all want to live better, lighter lives. We have more energy when we aren't carrying excess weight. We We feel better. And that inflammation is palpable, right? We're less fatigued if we're at a healthy body weight. So That's the reason for the discussion, and that is why weight loss and why we're talking about this is so important, but it isn't so cut and dry like people want to believe. So my hope in presenting all this information in this episode is to really give people insight into, A, how difficult it can be to lose weight, and B, what are some really valuable things to focus on, and maybe that doesn't look the same for every single person. Yeah, I think a lot of people can be really quick to jump on those next diet trends or those quick fixes. We all want immediate results, but our mission here is to really give you the science behind which dietary pattern is best to, you know, contribute to the weight loss, but also promote this long-term health and longevity. Absolutely. So I don't think you're going to give us this strict prescription of like this exact diet to follow. I think people need the flexibility in their life, right? To find the dietary pattern that's, that promotes health, but also works with their lifestyle. And so what is that one thing though, that you can give us that's definitely going to contribute to weight loss and longevity? Well, I'm going to get to all of that, but you're right in saying that people need to find the pattern that works best for them. And I think in general, the insight we're going to give today is far more valuable than that one strict 
thing or that strict prescription of how this is how you lose weight. You're going to hear arguments from every different camp on what's best for weight loss. Of course, like we said, it's a huge industry. So people who are making money off of this are going to give you their angle. And I want you to be be aware, like you said, of what's best for your health and then what fits into your lifestyle. It's way more complicated than people would want you to believe. You know, it's much more than just calories in or calories out. There are a lot of physiologic influences of excess weight. And, you know, what we see is that excess weight with inflammation causes missignaling in the brain. And these damaged signals just get you in this vicious cycle to store more fat. So we're going to talk about all of that. And we, at a baseline, you just need to realize that our body's evolutionary state is to conserve energy for survival. And that also means conserving calories for fuel. And so it is very hard when you put on excess weight to get it off because it's a perpetuating cycle and we have not evolved past this. And these mechanisms that served us in times of scarcity have now been maladapted when we have ready access to foods and foods that aren't necessarily healthy for us. Yeah, I think we've swung so far the other direction of this diet of heavily processed and fattening foods that we have this obesity crisis. And to get people back to this normal weight, like I, I want to offer a lot of compassion to people on this weight loss journey sure. because it's it's not an easy feat. Yeah. And, and, it, and when you say journey, it is just that. We see that successive fat loss cycles actually perpetuate a higher percentage of body fat. So what happens is you lose fat and muscle at the same time. And then our body's natural propensity is just to quickly gain back fat. I mean, it's harder to put on more muscle than it is to put back fat. So we want to, you know, our our primitive nature is to store those calories as quickly as possible. So more than 80% of people who lose weight gain it back. And they usually do that within a couple of years. And there's also a study from NHANES that say very few people, less than 17%, are even able to maintain a 10% weight loss at the first year. So it is. It really is a journey. And you're going to see that most of the people who have successful sustained weight loss have done so by trying various diets and going through the process multiple times. Yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, in this day and age with all of the social media influence, it can be easy to jump on the next diet trend and a lot of people have these personal stories of how they, you know, went on a ketogenic diet to reverse their diabetes or lose all of this weight. And those can be really compelling. We attach yeah. to those stories, but it doesn't necessarily mean that that is evidence that this is the right way to do something. Right. right? Anecdotal evidence is very compelling. You want it to work for you. You know, that's part of our mirror neurons. Mm -hmm. We want to do what other people are doing. We see success. We want to follow that success. But there may be some factors that may not allow each individual to thrive in certain circumstances. So on this journey, I think a lot of people can think that they just have bad genetics or they have bad luck or bad habits. How can you kind of reframe this mindset for people that are stuck in this pattern of thinking that because their family member has this problem, they're inherently going to have it as well? Well, first of all, it isn't just our genes. And we're going to talk more about that. But I want to first talk about the things that are really working against weight loss. And this is true for everybody on a biologic level. To quote a Time Magazine article from 2020, 
the body will fight like hell to get the weight back. And so when we talk about the process of this, Kevin Hall, who is a physicist and diet researcher, studies subjects from The Biggest Loser, which is, you know, a really great show to watch. Oh, yeah, I heard about his study. <laughs> and, but, you know, they had these massive amounts of weight loss, like 100 plus pounds. Mm-hmm. And over 60% of those per- participants ended up gaining back that weight. And so he had all of these questions as to why that was. You know, if they've gone through extremes in order to weight, to lose the weight, how do they end up gaining it back? And what he found was that when they lost weight, their metabolism slowed down significantly. Not only that, but as they regained the weight, their metabolism stayed low, up to like 700 calories fewer burned per day. Oh, wow. And this is what I'm saying. It's the body's primal mechanism for energy conservation to obviously promote our survival for scarcity of food. Let me explain on a physiologic level how this compensatory mechanism works, and hopefully it'll drive it home for you. So our biology of energy metabolism starts in the hypothalamus. It is the central regulator in the brain. It regulates a lot of processes, but we're going to focus on energy and body weight for now. It receives signals in the form of hormones from the gut and fat cells mostly, but other organs too, when we're talking about energy metabolism. When we lose weight, the body thinks, oh, I'm starving. It's the same signal of weight loss and I don't have enough food. I'm in a starvation or famine period. And so the body's first response in that situation is to prevent adverse effects of starvation. So it starts to reduce its energy expenditure at baseline. So we call this your resting energy expenditure. So it's like a basal metabolic rate. Mm -hmm. And that goes down. So our body's saying, okay, I'm going to prepare for famine. The fancy term for this is adaptive thermogenesis. But of course, this decreased resting energy expenditure leads to further weight gain, and it doesn't correct, right? So it doesn't correct as we regain weight because our body's now preparing for the next period of starvation. But that's not it, okay? There's a lot more. So we can look at hormones and the feeding signals that are also affected by weight. A good example is that a higher weight is associated with leptin resistance, and leptin is our hormone for satiety. So similar to that compensatory mechanism for resting energy expenditure, people who experience weight loss also have a compensatory reduction in their satiety hormones. So this is another mechanism for us to consume calories and store energy or fuel. As well as there's an increase in our hunger hormone known as ghrelin. An important thing to note about this, however, is that the adjustment to this hormone signaling may be dose dependent. So losing a ton of weight is gonna definitely cause you to be less satiated and more hungry, but under a 5% weight loss, there might be this threshold that doesn't cause a change in these hormone signaling systems. Thyroid hormone is also a pathway that's affected by weight loss. When we lose weight, this axis is suppressed, and so that may be associated or account for that reduced energy expenditure. Cortisol is another one. Elevated cortisol is associated with obesity, This could be accounted for through the leptin resistance pathway. This too rises as we restrict calories, and this is a stress hormone. So our body holds on to calories in states of stress because, again, it cannot distinguish between like a biochemical stressor 
versus just chronic stress versus, oh, a famine, right? So all do for survival. So are you saying like this overwhelming stressor on our body of losing weight too quickly is going to cause this, you know, unregulation or dis- disimbalance of our hormones so it's better to lose weight slowly over time? I would say, and that's what I gather from these research articles, from these studies. So we're going to talk more as we get down to the rest of the episode on what factors to really focus on. Okay. Let me get through some more of like the information just to drive home all the points, and then we're going to put it all together. Awesome. Um, So obesity, again, another issue with, you know, this perpetuating cycle of fat storage. Obesity is associated also with a delayed gastric emptying. So this is all hormone-driven as well. What happens is it slows the transit time of food for the gut. So there's increased calorie absorption from our food. And then it also slows down the release of satiety hormones, which, you know, obviously are going to make us eat more. And then there's studies that show that there is a subjective preferential taste for different foods depending on your body weight or your percentage of body fat. So individual patients versus lean patients show that obese patients prefer high fat and high sugar foods just by taste than lean subjects. And unfortunately, when obese subjects lose weight, the preference for those high caloric foods, high fat and high sugar goes up. So what I want to say is with all these things we talk about, like the gastric emptying, the hormone signaling, the adaptive thermogenesis, these things are working against you. It isn't your fault. So we want to we get to the meat of why it's so hard to lose weight and what we can do about it. Wow, that's really incredible and unbelievable how our processes work and how it's really resisting us from losing the weight and working against what we're really trying to do. So how do people avoid this cycle that's happening? So the culprits for weight gain are calorie-dense foods without a whole lot of nutrients. They're usually generally hitting those reward centers, and then they promote inflammation right? So when we talk about calorie-dense foods, those are our refined foods. Those are animal sources that have a lot of saturated fat. Those are things that have been, you know, extracted from other sources of food that are now concentrated maybe into oils or butters. So you got to think about those and have those very sparingly. Then our nutrient-deficient foods are things that are obviously very refined, right? The antithesis is that... uh, The antithesis of those things are like our plant foods that have a lot of nutrient value. Our body sees those differently. Those give us more satiation. And then rewarding food are things like refined sugars, saturated fat. These hit these dopamine receptors in our brain. They cause us to overeat. And our industry is really good at marketing these to us, right? Because they want us. That's money. The more you eat, the more money they make. So being really cognizant of that. All of these foods, again, very, very hyper-inflammatory. We talked in the meat and disease episode about how those animal proteins without the contributing fiber and phytochemicals can be very inflammatory through bacterial endotoxin and TMAOs and other metabolites. So being aware of that, also these refined sugars that elevate our insulin and promote dysbiosis, we got to be really careful of that. We want high-fiber foods that promote an anti-inflammatory cascade through short-chain fatty acids will continue to drive home that 
plant foods are really important for lowering inflammation. I think it's important to note too, I know we're not talking about the gut microbiome today, but by feeding our gut microbes, the more of these whole plant foods, they actually begin to crave those more over those, you know, saturated, fatty, obesogenic foods. Yeah. And we're going to get, actually, we are going to talk a little bit about the microbiome today because that's probably where the forefront of weight loss is going. But let's get into how dieting all started because that seems to, you know, if you're overweight and you've had all these foods, dieting seems to be the answer. And dieting started way back in the 1800s. There was this ideal of the feminine romantic beauty and she was thin and she was had a laced waist. And then <laughs> yeah. Victorian anorexia was a big hit in the 1850s. And so we've seen the progression of more modern diets from the 1970s. The height of popularity of a low-fat diet really started then. This was a common belief um, that, you know, fat was the ultimate culprit for disease. And we do know that saturated fat is very inflammatory and is the cause for a lot of disease. But then there was this there was this focus on lowering fat, and then we started to see this rise in especially refined sugars, but sugars in general. So the pendulum kind of swung the other way then where we realized, oh, sugar is actually really bad for us. So let's ignore the fat and let's go on these low-carb, low-sugar diets. And that's really been in the late 1990s, the early 2000s. Um, And that kind of occurred as obesity started giving way to diabetes. And there was all this emphasis on sugar control. Yeah, they've kind of gone to extremes of like, if this is good, then how about the extreme of it? Like completely taking out this macronutrient from our diet is going to be best, right? Right. And I think that the answer maybe lies somewhere in the middle, right? So when we look at all the different diet trends, we can see that some have some really great components and maybe they lack some other components. So the Mediterranean diet, that's probably one of our best diets. It's very health promoting. It's rich in plant foods, healthy oils. They had wild caught fish, which was promoting that, which promoted healthy omega threes. Of course, fish supply may not be as advantageous as maybe it once was, um, but this Mediterranean diet we certainly see promotes longevity. Another diet that's somewhat similar to this is the DASH diet. So this was a diet created for cardiac health, particularly to lower blood pressure. And then in 1997. It's plant-based again. It's low-fat, low-sodium is kind of its key characteristic too. But it does allow for lean meats like poultry that are very inflammatory. Then we can talk about vegan or vegetarian. Vegans and vegetarians tend to have lower BMIs. So people tend to jump on the plant-based train and being a vegan or vegetarian in hopes to keep down their weight, but may not focus on those whole plant foods. And you can have really unhealthy food and still be a vegan. So that's something to consider if you're, you know, considering a vegan or vegetarian diet. Yeah. I think that's where marketing has jumped in and said, Hey, we have all these vegans now. So let's create these processed cheeses and processed, you know, meat alternatives that are really not health promoting, but they are going to stay in line with that vegan title that you're building. And like Oreos are vegan, right? So it's not just like the imitation animal products. It's even these really ultra-processed, inflammatory, refined sugars that, you know, don't necessarily promote weight loss either. Yeah, um, so if somebody doesn't have that knowledge, they're out there buying, you know, plant-based cookies, plant-based, uh-huh. you know, yeah. chips. It's, Thinking they're it's, losing weight. Yeah. <laughs> Doing something good Why for themselves. Why is this working? Well, I, and I hate that. I hate that for consumers. It's so confusing. 
Um, but jumping back into the diet, so Weight Watchers, which is actually called WW now, I think in uh, a couple of years ago, they rebranded to Wellness That Works. And their their whole thing is being low fat and they also you know reduce calories. But I think mm-hmm. most of their meals are provided. So again, you have to be aware of like the processed nature of some of these foods. Um, keto is a huge trend right now. We talked a lot about keto in the carbohydrate episode. Um, low carb has its benefits, right? We've seen children and epilepsy that are ben- that benefit from low carb. Of course, it does help reduce obesity and it can help improve some, you know, health measures, particularly around cardiac health. But it's not sustainable long term in terms of health. And again, when we talk about keto in terms of dieting, a lot of people will start focusing on fat as a source of energy because keto takes away the carbohydrates in order to keep you in this ketosis or fat burning stage. But if you're going to do this, you got to make sure you stay away from the really unhealthy saturated fats, like mm-hmm. the bacon butter thing, which was really popular when Atkins diet came out, which yeah. is not great for your health. <laughs> or the butter MCT oil in your coffee kind of trend that was going on or coconut oil, which is yeah. a saturated fat. So. Saturated fat, right? Okay. So then moving on, there's the paleo diet. So this was really centered around the evolutionary biology when we were hunters and gatherers, right? To eat like people did when we were yeah. hunting and gathering. The problem is they're really heavy on the hunting and not so heavy on the gathering, <laughs> which it needs to be the opposite. Whole30, it gets rid of a lot of sugars, but it also gets rid of a lot of things like healthy legumes. So you're going to end up losing a lot of these really health-promoting dietary aspects in restrictive diet patterns such as this. They also take out a lot of whole grains too, don't they? I think so. I think so, Yeah. And then cleanses. Um, There's no science really behind cleanses. I know people like them to jumpstart diet. Mm -hmm. But again, these are refined juices. They're going to be super inflammatory without feeding the gut. You know, you're stripping these things of fiber. So without feeding your gut with fiber, you're going to end up killing off these bacteria in your gut. You're going to promote dysbiosis. So that's not beneficial for your overall health. And it obviously is not going to help promote weight loss in the long term. And it's not sustainable. Exactly. And then intermittent fasting, which isn't a diet. I want to just say that. It's not a diet. It can be an adjunct to a diet, to a calorie-restrictive diet, but it isn't a modality in of itself. So that's something, you know, you can refer to our fasting episode for the benefits of that. It does have some health benefits. And, you know, again, you have to find if that's right for you or not. So are there some components of these diets that make them more successful than the other ones? Yes, because not all calories are created equal. Calories from fat aren't the same as calories from protein, aren't the same as calories from carbohydrates, and certainly how they're packaged isn't Mm -hmm. the same. So we're going to talk about a couple of things here. So first, diets that seem to stick with a focus on protein tend to be easier to sustain for most people because they don't cause fluctuations in the blood sugar as much. And Those fluctuations in blood sugar seem to be very rapid. They're associated with a lot of hunger pangs. And so if you're having a concentrated, you know, diet of protein, you're typically going to be able to stick with it. Yeah, because it's satiating. Exactly. your blood sugar is balanced. Right. And, you know, another thing is what we alluded to it earlier, you're losing muscle as you're losing weight. So if you're consistently getting protein, You're maintaining the building blocks to maintain lean muscle mass, Mm -hmm. which helps with 
your resting metabolic rate. Uh, a 2015 study showed that two to three training exercises per week can increase your metabolic rate 5%. So keeping up with protein intake as you're working out could be beneficial to weight loss as well. I want to caution you though, that even lean meats like poultry, you know, they are inflammatory. And we see a lot of fitness buffs who we automatically assume are healthy within as they look healthy from without. I just want to give you one example um, of a case. Bob Harper is a famous case. He was 52 and had a heart attack. Um, And he seemed to be very healthy. He was actually one of the hosts of The Biggest Loser. But it turned out that, you know, even though he was eating a quote-unquote healthy diet, he was promoting inflammation in his body. So just being aware of those things that can be still inflammatory. Maybe more important than the protein is the fiber content of these foods. So calories that are tied to fiber have a totally different effect on the body, right? They're not consumed. Fiber isn't consumed for calories, right? And it slows the absorption of those simple sugars or whatever's attached that are absorbed for calories. Not only that, but they feed healthy gut bacteria that produce fermentation byproducts like short-chain fatty acids that we know lower inflammation. And then slowing the absorption of all the macronutrients into the bloodstream, it really helps with satiety and it regulates our tendency to overeat. It's been well established that plant-predominant diets are associated with lower rates of obesity. Okay, so let me tell you about a couple of studies around satiety hormones that may account for why this is. And they they seem to be a little counterintuitive, but I will explain. So there's one study that compared omnivores, lacto-ovo-vegetarians, and vegans, and measured the plasma circulating levels of leptin. So in the blood, they saw that lacto-ovo-vegetarians and vegans had lower circulating plasma concentrations of leptin. Remember, this is our hormone of satiety. And so if you think about it, If you have high circulating levels of a hormone, it's likely that you're becoming resistant to that hormone. It's similar to having high levels of fasting insulin in your blood. That's a precursor for diabetes or insulin resistance. Mm -hmm. So we see that. We see in another study that satiety hormones go up after a plant-based meal matched for calories. So people who are eating the same meal, same size, same calories, same macronutrients. If it's plant-based, you get more satiety hormones. So not only are you less resistant to the hormone, if you are vegan or lacto-ovo-vegetarian, but you get more response to satiety when you're eating plant-based. Are there any studies that show any examples of dietary patterns that people have lost a lot of weight and kept it off for a length of time? One of the biggest resources for this information is the National Weight Control Registry. It was started by Rena Wing, who is a professor of psychiatry and human behavior at Brown University. You can actually go to their website and you can join it. And you can say, I've lost so-and-so pounds and I've kept it off for this long. There are requirements. You have to have at least lost 30 pounds and have kept it off for over a year. And then it has all of these questions about what diets you did and lifestyle and It gives us a lot of insight into what specifically helps people lose weight. So I'm going to tell you, and this is all on their website. The first two things that they mention are that these people not only change their diet, but they also increase their physical activity. 
I want to note that the most reported form of activity was just walking. So just getting moving is important for weight loss. And I'm sure there's so many other factors not accounted for. You know, people, when they start in the momentum of moving towards eating better, of moving their body more, they inherently take on other, you know, stress-reducing activities and other factors that play into that. Absolutely. And we see all through lifestyle studies how everything is confounded. Mm -hmm. But we see, again, that these people have mostly eat breakfast every day. They weigh themselves frequently at least once a week. And that coincides with some other studies we know where frequent weighers, maybe even daily, show to lose more weight or gain less weight. And the spread is anywhere from 13 to 17 pounds difference in those who weigh themselves daily to those who don't weigh themselves very frequently. And that's just probably accounting for awareness, to be honest. Yeah, like treating it like a vital sign of here's where I'm at, here's where I'm going to, and kind of measuring your progress along the journey. Yeah. And then again, with this registry, 62% of people said that they watch less than 10 hours of TV per week. Per week. 10 hours of TV is a lot. <laughs> like, I don't know, you know, but yeah. So most of these people don't watch a whole lot of TV. Um, they, well, now they're moving and not watching yeah, TV, yeah, yeah. right? They're substituting yeah. one activity for a better one. Okay. And the most important thing I think, well, I think it was, let me, let me say this first. These people tended to be morning people. There's also a study that shows people who are morning people actually tend to weigh less than people who are night owls. I am always trying to get people on board on the morning train. I am a big proponent. Yeah. Um, But I guess the most important thing here and the one that they really want to drive home through this is that a lot of these people tried a lot of different diets and there was no one single diet that really manifested through all of them as the outstander for successful, sustainable weight loss. And when we talk about individual diets, people want to say, okay, well, it's individualized to my genes because that's what we know as our genetic identity. Mm -hmm. But research is showing that it isn't necessarily tied to our 23 chromosomes. Yeah, I don't know the exact percentage, but I think it's almost 90% of chronic diseases are modifiable by lifestyle factors. Right. And they're saying that only 3% of uh, obesity is even due to some of the obesogenic genes that we discuss. So we can definitely avoid obesity regardless of our genes. And what is that saying? That um, obesity or disease runs in families because, like, because lifestyles run in families? Like, you know, we eat the same way as the people in our environment and we have the same sedentary behavior as, you know, our family and stuff like that. But there is a different kind of genetic material. And this is where we head into the microbiome discussion that might hold the key for weight loss. I think back on that quote that you were trying to say, Caldwell Esselstyn has a good one. He says, genetics loads the gun, but lifestyle pulls the trigger. Ooh, I like that. Okay, so let's talk about genetics of a microbiome because all of these microbiota, these species, have genetic material of themselves, and we call that the microbiome. And when we study that, we can see a very clear predictability on how we will respond to food. So there's a study that shows blood sugar responses will vary greatly amongst individuals who eat the exact same meal. Yeah. And it could be accurately predicted just by looking at the factors in the microbiome. So we're seeing through research that the microbiome can change the way we effectively break down calories, and it can also affect gut inflammation. 
For example, a modest-sized cohort study showed that certain bacterial animalized genes were prominent in individuals who were resistant to weight loss. So this is just more evidence for us that the constitution of our gut microbiome could radically affect our ability to lose weight. The authors say that having a lower commensal growth of healthy gut bacteria allow an individual to rapidly absorb polysaccharides or these sugars in the lumen before they're transformed into less energy-dense byproducts like short-chain fatty acids. So the concept here is that if we don't have a good variety of gut bacteria, we are going to absorb the calories in our food in these polysaccharide forms as opposed to allowing them to be fermented by bacteria and then absorbing them in forms of byproducts like short-chain fatty acids that are beneficial for our inflammation and for our overall health. Gosh, you gave a great breakdown of how our genetics don't hold the keys to our health and our propensity to be able to lose weight and prevent these chronic diseases and then our microbiome. But where should we really focus our attention on? So if I'm going to bring it all together, I would say eat nutrient-rich plant foods in their whole form to get those good fibers, lower inflammatory foods, right? So avoid all processed sugars, and refined flours altogether if you can, lowering those inflammatory animal products that we talked about. Then set up your environment for success, right? We can't always depend on our willpower. And if we make it easy to make good choices, it's easier to make good choices. Um, Then recognize your patterns of overeating. Really be aware when you're overeating if there's any kind of emotional response to that and putting that in the forefront of your awareness will make it easier to combat that overeating cycle. And then being mindful without the guilt is important. You know, weighing yourself, but not really riding on that number. Having a vital sign and detaching from the emotions of your weight. But being mindful all the time of what you're eating and how much you're eating. But don't be too restrictive. We don't want to trigger these compensatory mechanisms, right? We want to stay under that threshold where we make it really hard for ourselves. So slow, be yeah. slow and really cognizant about it. And giving, getting those plant foods that are high in fiber and that will help perpetuate satiety hormones is going to counterbalance some of these compensatory mechanisms. And then don't internalize the weight. So a lot of this is about your mind. And if you're feeling guilty and if you're saying that this is your fault, you tend to do worse in terms of getting rid of excess weight and know that it isn't your fault because you're being marketed to, we have such ready access to bad foods. It promotes overeating, calorie density. And then we talked about all the biological factors. So take a deep breath. This is a slow and steady journey. Really tie it back into your health if you can. That will have a deeper meaning for you instead of just a number on a scale. Um, And really get to the whole approach of this. So it's not just about eating, it's also about your lifestyle. Are you getting sleep? Are you managing your stress? Are you hydrating properly? Do you have proper support? And then also chemical exposure. There's more research coming out about how this affects our hormone balance and could potentially affect our weight. So the conversation isn't over, right? There's more to come on this topic as more research comes out. And so always be open-minded to how this conversation could change 
and know that there's a ton of research money going into obesity and the science of weight loss. And we really think, I mean, I I really think that the new frontier is focusing on the gut microbiome and optimizing that for healthy weight and overall health. Yeah, I think gut health is the future of nutrition. And both of us love to preach on this lifestyle approach to wellness because all of these factors play into longevity and living out a healthful life free of chronic disease. So if you're on this journey, we applaud you. We're cheering for you. And don't forget to celebrate those small wins because sometimes that imperceptible growth can be there, but you really have to pay attention to it and recognize it because we're not offering this quick fix. We're offering this lifestyle approach that a lot of times takes time and we have to be patient with ourselves. And part of that momentum is celebrating those little wins. Maybe it's just a pound off. Maybe it's feeling lighter. Maybe it's having more energy to complete a longer workout, but pay attention to those small changes because those are going to propel you forward to move you forward on this journey and get you to that lifestyle that feels freaking amazing. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) So thank you so much for joining us this week. If you like this episode, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, Apple, Spotify, leave us a five-star review and share it with a friend who you think could really benefit from this. And we will see you next week.